Samuel chapter 16. Some of you have perhaps seen the bulletin sitting around. Um, we got a harp on it because David was a psalmist, right? Um, David is going to become king at some point in our journey through Samuel. I also uh, pointed out because you'll notice that there's a reading schedule inside. Um, and then we cover some ground. We're not, on Sundays, we're not teaching like every single verse. We're not teaching every single chapter. We're kind of going through significant event by significant event. And we're giving you ahead of time the section that will be covered so we as a fellowship can read together and we can go through all those parts. And you might at times have a question about what you read. You might just have a general question whatsoever. Um, I am more than happy to, you know, discuss and reflect with you on those things. So, um, as always, my email is provided at the bottom of the bulletin. You guys are always welcome to contact me there. And um, if you guys don't follow the podcast, we in the middle of the week, we also throw up some extra content, a little bit of a deeper alternative dive on the text that we covered on Sunday. Sometimes it covers a, a text that was just couldn't fit in on Sunday, but it's too good to miss. Sometimes it's a story from someone in our fellowship. Sometimes it's me answering a question that was submitted. It's a bunch of different things just to give you guys a little deeper dive. So um, if you want to know how to do that, ask somebody that that has a smartphone, because it probably means they know what they're doing, and they will show you. <laughs> I mean, there's a hundred of you somewhere that are listening, so I'm assuming that a big chunk of them are in here. Um, I could be more than happy to show you how to do that as well. With that, um, you can also go to cctwinpeaks.com, and you can access everything there as well. All right? Good to see everyone. <sighs> it's been a long day of the barbecue and baptisms, and I'm still trying to uh, get my blood temperature back to normal. Um, going in and out, in and out. Uh, it was, yeah, my pleasure, though, to uh, see people baptized. This is just a great day. All right, so First Samuel chapter 16. Father, again, we're just here. We're here because you are here. There's absolutely no other reason we would be here. Um, there's no reason we would have this diversity in this room, a diversity of walks of life, of jobs, of age groups, um, a diversity of ways of relating to you. There are people who've been walking with you for a long time. There are people who... Um, have recently, very recently, made decisions to follow you. There are people who know every book of your word. There are people who maybe know one or two verses. Lord, we're all here because you're here. And we ask that from the feeding of your word, you would create a oneness among us, that we are all equally needful of your grace of your presence, of your love coming to us. And as we take communion later tonight, I ask, Father, that you would eliminate that which makes us feel other from the people around us. To eliminate, to kill, to destroy that which makes us feel superior to others around us. And Lord, though we may often not May we may, may, though we may not be people who often intentionally do something divisive, I'm painfully aware of the times when we unintentionally do things that are divisive by not talking to somebody, 
by not doing what we know is right in the right moment. So, Father, please nurture us now. Um, Give us a fresh, fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. We need your life alive in us. We give up our ways of doing things. And we renounce the ways of the world of relying on yourself because we know where that leads. There's a way that seems right to a man, and its way is the way of death, the Proverbs say. So let us rely on your strength, on your spirit tonight. Meet our deepest need so that we don't have to meet it ourselves. Lead your people. Shepherd us. Take us to green pastures. Take us to still waters. Strengthen us through the valley of the shadow of death. Enrich us with a feast in the presence of our taunters, tormentors, and enemies. Lord, anoint your sheep's head with oil. Let us be freshly endowed with your presence and your pleasure. And let your goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life, everywhere we go. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. First Samuel 16. Have you ever felt like you're in a very lowly and lonely place? Lonely and lowly. That's a shepherd. A very undesirable job back in the day. You were a shepherd if you weren't wanted for anything else. And shepherds quickly developed poor reputations. They were rogues. They lived off the land, out on their own. And actually, frankly, they didn't have their land. Their sheep kind of went wherever the grass was. Sometimes that took you into someone else's property. And the owner of that property would come out with a shotgun and say, you get your sheep away from my grass. Shepherds were known, some of them, as being crooks, stealing from properties, taking other people's flocks. They smelled, naturally, living out in the open all the time, living among sheep, carrying sheep, carrying and caring for sheep. Have you ever been at that kind of a place where you just feel like you're in the lowliest place you can be? Maybe it was a job that you didn't feel worthy of that wasn't going to get you anywhere. Or maybe you were down on your luck and you were literally lonely at the bottom of the rope, the end of yourself. This is where we meet King David, or the soon-to-be King David. This is a rags-to-riches story, and it begins tonight, and it will continue for the next few weeks. We're going to see that God cares for the lonely and the lowly. Do you remember when Jesus was born, whom God made sure knew the message? There were shepherds out watching their sheep by night, and that's whom the angels came with the glorious news that God's son was on earth. And what we need to see is we connect these dots, an insignificant shepherd boy, and then in the New Testament, these shepherds, These are people who are pushed out of society by nature of their job and because, well, they have a bad reputation for what they do. Yet God does not see anybody too low or too alone to go and find. 
There are plenty of people who did not get the angelic message that a king has been born, but the shepherds did. And so when we are in the lowliest and loneliest of places, when we are in our wilderness and things are not proper or the way we prefer them, we need to know that we are not forgotten by God. And though humanity and flesh and bone forget us or seem to not care, there is one who gives the news to to shepherds first. So here's a shepherd who is clearly not forgotten. Chapter 16, verse 1. Yahweh said to Samuel, Samuel's our prophet. He represents the word of God to Israel. How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now, last week we saw why Saul, the first king of Israel, has been rejected. He upstaged the prophet Samuel three times. He decided that God's word was not important in his life and he could do things his own way. And this upstaging of God's word, his prophet, is leading Saul on a path to madness. And he has been rejected from being king. God said, I am searching now for a man after my own heart. That man is about to enter into the scene. So in verse 1 still, God tells Samuel, Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Do you remember chapter 8 last week? Israel came to Samuel the prophet and said, We want a king. Give us a king like all the other nations. So Samuel provides for them a king. Well, now Yahweh is going to provide for himself a king. We saw Israel's king fall. We're now going to see God's king rise. So verse 2, Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, He will kill me. Now, Saul has been rejected as king, but if you know kings, I don't know one personally, but I know history pretty well, or semi-well, kings don't get off the throne very easily. You can't just say, you've been bad, get off the throne, like, oh man, okay, I'll give it up. They don't do that. They send their last soldier dying for the throne. Saul's not leaving the throne. He will not leave it for the entirety of the rest of this book. Even though David is going to be made king tonight, it will take the rest of this book to get Saul out of the scene. That is how stubborn and how deeply rooted the ego and the selfishness and the desire to rule and control people and have status and not be a shepherd. That's how deeply rooted those desires are. That even though God is not with Saul, he will refuse to give up this throne. So so Samuel is afraid. He's terrified. I have a king who's sitting on the throne. Even though he's rejected, he's still sitting there. And he's now paranoid that another king that God has picked is going to replace me. So if he sees me marching on over suspiciously to a rather small town called Bethlehem, which I probably would have no other purpose of visiting other than to anoint someone to be king, if Saul had found out about that, he would chop my head off. He's already upstaged Samuel three times. Why wouldn't he decapitate him 
So, so Samuel's understandably a bit afraid of this mission. And Yahweh said, here's how you do this. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. So he shows up to the town. I, I'm not doing anything, but I'm doing a religious ceremony for everybody. And then Saul goes, oh, okay, he's doing his prophet thing. And God tells him, invite Jesse to the sacrifice. So make sure that family makes it to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So Samuel did what Yahweh commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, <laughs> We know that the Saul, King Saul is mad. Why are you here? Don't bring his wrath upon us. And Saul says, or Samuel says, I, I come peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. So consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. So this is the kind of sacrifice where they give the animal to God, it burns up, and then they use the meat that was cooked to eat together. So this is going to be a festival. Um, and so he, cons- he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So they come in, I'm, pe- I'm coming peaceably, we're going to have a meal to God. And he's like, but, uh, uh, Jesse, I want to make sure that you specifically have a special invitation to this feast. You're going to sit at my right hand and make sure you bring your sons with you. Seems like a pretty easy instruction. Come with your sons. Well, he kind of does that. So in verse 6, when they came, Samuel looked on Eliab. That's, that's Jesse's firstborn, and thought, Surely Yahweh's anointed is before him. But Yahweh said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. That word height in the Hebrew is gevoha, which is the word frequently used to describe King Saul. Uh, one of the ways we could translate it very loosely, if you were to do a contemporary translation, it could, it could read, instead of height, it could read charismatic. So Eliab looks like a politician. <laughs> Look out, America says to them. <laughs> um, I have rejected him. And now here's why. For Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. In other words, humans are very convinced by charisma and outward personality and strength of personality and good looks and strength and height and fashion and all those things that look good to the eye. But Yahweh is drawn to the inner life, the character. It's not to say that charisma is bad. Saul was charismatic but it was bad because he had no character. He was hollow inside. David, we're going to find out, has some handsome qualities. But further than some sort of charismatic appearance, David has character. And we're going to see that over the course of many chapters, the things David goes through. God sees something inside him. So tonight we're talking about glitter and gold. Because J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings author, has this well-attributed quote. Um, All that is gold doesn't glitter. All that is gold doesn't glitter. 
the idea behind that poetic phrasing is there's a lot of things of substance and things that are gold, the thing that is the real deal, but not all of that glitters. In other words, not everything that is meaningful and substantial and that has weight and that has value and is really worth investing your life in, it doesn't always sparkle and dazzle with glit and glam and say, ooh, I want to do that. Sometimes the purest gold in life is not glittering before you. It's just there. And, and, and God tells Samuel, as Eliab, this handsome, tall, get boha, this charismatic man comes forward, he's all glit and glam as he comes, and Samuel's like, that's the one, isn't it, God? This job is easy. God's like, no. Not all that is gold glitters. He might have glitter, but there's no gold within him. There's no pure substance. I've rejected him. So Jesse called uh, the next son, Abinadab, verse 8, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has Yahweh chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Nope, not this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel's getting a little nervous at this point. Like, God told me, this house, none of these sons are the one. Samuel said to Jesse, um, Yahweh has not chosen these. So, Jesse, verse 11, are all your sons here by chance? Now, I love this question. What I can imagine is at this table, ready to feast, Jesse looks over awkwardly at his wife with this knowing look. And... He says, well, there remains yet the youngest, or the Hebrew is literally the, the smallest. He's the runt. He's, he's the nobody. He doesn't have any glitter or glam. Um, there remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. That's supposed to say everything. Like, Samuel, move on. He's not even worth our time. He's not only the smallest, but he's a shepherd. And Samuel said to Jesse, I could see him putting his feet up on the table like, we're going to be here for a while. <laughs> Send and get him, for we will not sit down. The Hebrew does not literally mean sit, it just means to eat. That's the idea of sitting down. So we will not eat, we will not feast till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, which means he has like a sort of reddish appearance. So many people believe that um, David had red hair, some sort of golden red hair. He was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And Yahweh said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. I'm out of here before Saul hunts me down. Um... Anointing. What this is, is pressed olive oil, put in the horn, like a ram's horn, and the prophet Samuel is taking that, and he is now to designate that this is God's chosen one. That's what it, anointing somebody is all about. I am designating this person above everybody else as my favorite one. 
Samuel would pour out the golden liquor upon his head. And he would pour it in the shape of a wreath, crowning him. And then it would, of course, drip down. And the idea, too, is that as the oil would saturate into the hair, and it would saturate into the skin and the clothes, it was symbolic of the Spirit of God saturating the person. That this is now somebody who's different, because God's presence is saturating him with favor. Everybody knew what this meant. King Saul was anointed, he's now rejected. Now David is being anointed. I was, I, 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 I smell like B.O. I was just fixing lamb dung, and I ran over here, I'm out of breath, and now I'm being, this mess is being anointed. Yeah. The word anointed in Hebrew, to say that's the Lord's anointed, what you would hear in Hebrew is that is the Mashiach, which in America version is Messiah. So as David's anointed, he's now rise the Messiah, rise the anointed. Messiah is the word we call Jesus. He's the Christ, the Messiah. They're the same word, just different language based. Um, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. What we say when we say that is he's the anointed king. And so David begins what's going, we'll see later in the Bible, he becomes the the great, 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 great father of Jesus. David, the true Messiah, will far down the line bring about Jesus, the last and real Messiah. So, you would think things are going to be grand from here on out. They're not. They're not. Just like Jesus had to go way down before he ascended the throne, David is going to have a very hard and long story as we're going to see. But remember, God is after the character. That's what he's looking for in his king. Now, in verse 14, the spirit of Yahweh had just rushed upon David. But now in 14, the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul. So there's been a switch. That kingly presence has left Saul and now entered David. And a harmful spirit from Yahweh tormented him. Now, the word spirit can refer to a literal spirit like God's spirit, but the Hebrew can also refer to an emotion. It's probably best to read this as God's empowering spirit left Saul to go to David, and in its place left a a deep, dark, brooding mood in Saul. The favor of God had left, and now in its place was this depression, this this just brooding, I am so unhappy and I don't know why. We're going to see that Saul is a bit crazy. Literally, he gets more and more mad as he goes. Is a spiral into madness. So what happens when we refuse God's way? Um, some people have suggested that maybe Saul's bipolar. There's been a couple of attempts to try to medically diagnose Saul. Um, and there's some things that fit. 
but I don't pretend that I have any understanding of what that would even mean, and if we can even safely say that any modern diagnosis would fit something back then. But it, it, the point is to show that Saul is, literally seems to have some sort of uh, a problem, whether it's mental or psychological or spiritual, but there's something that deeply is broken within Saul from here on out. And you're not going to quite see it tonight, but next week, and as you guys read for the future chapters, it's a lot, so I encourage you guys to read through some of it, you're going to see what a crazy guy this is. Happy and loving everybody one moment, and then trying to pin someone to the wall the next. So um, a harmful spirit is now on Saul. And Saul's servants, this is verse 15, said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now, this that means our king, let our king now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre or the harp. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So let's find a music therapist to help you out in your depression. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and Yahweh is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden, and so David gets prepared and he goes before Saul. And then in verse 23, whenever the harmful spirit of God was upon Saul, or that bad temper, that mood, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Interesting. Okay, chapter 16, you have two episodes. You have Bethlehem being the place of desire in each. Um, in episode one, the prophet goes to Bethlehem to get David, to anoint him king. In episode two, the king, the fake king, sends to Bethlehem to get David to become his musician. In uh, episode one, the spirit comes upon David. In episode two, the spirit leaves Saul. In episode one, we see that David is handsome, he's good looking, he has beautiful eyes, and the spirit of the Lord is with him. Um, in episode two, we see not those same descriptions, more of a military, he, some, he's a man of valor, uh, he's a shepherd, in both episodes he's a shepherd, but in, in the point is, in, in episode one and two, we see that David is well respected by people, though maybe small of stature. And so we get this theme set now, don't we? David the shepherd is now anointed, and wouldn't you know it, as soon as God pulls us out of that really lowly and lonely season, things move fast when he moves. And now he's not only anointed to be king, but God is preparing him for the palace, and he's letting him be underneath a bad king, covertly, playing music for him, so that he can learn how not to rule a nation. As we're going to see in the upcoming chapters, Saul is terrible to David. It's going to start off nice. It's going to get terrible. And you may have had to be under somebody who's terrible to you. And you may not know why. And you may think bitter thoughts toward them to your dying day. I encourage you not to. Because God uses the terrible leaders in our lives. He uses them to break the corrupt character within us and fill us with gold. He uses them 
He uses them to show us how not to be. And I've been blessed to be under good and bad leaders. So I can say from experience that the bad ones, you don't honestly want to recommend people follow them. And you don't like the years that you did, but they're not a waste. They taught you a lot of precious lessons. And sometimes the best lesson you can learn is the one that hurts. It sticks. And David, we're going to see, has become a good king because perhaps he has to be under Saul. Um, chapter 17 now. So David's been anointed. From low to, okay, there's a promise. Something's going to come one day. Now in chapter 17, we have this interesting scene where David shows up and he's going to be put to the test. We saw he's anointed as king. What kind of king will David be? Will he be worthy of this title? Chapter 17 says, let's put him to the test and see what he's like. So the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah. So they've invaded. And they encamped between Sukkot and Azekah. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. Now the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. So here's a picture. The Philistines are on this hill here. There dips down into a valley, comes up to another hill, and Israel's on the hill here. And they're on the top of each hill, staring at each other, daring the other to move first. Why? Because of the valley in the middle. Now, if Israel goes first, all the Philistines have to do is wait until they have the downhill advantage. And that's what both armies are doing. They're daring the other to go first because they don't want to be the one disadvantaged in fighting uphill. So there's a standoff. Who's going to have the better ground? And they're just sitting there for days and days and days. 40 days, in fact. And every day that there's a standoff, the Philistines are trying to settle it by sending out their champion warrior. He's a man who stands almost 10 feet tall, some reports say. Um, the Bible says... Uh, talks about cubits. It translates to almost 10 feet. Um, <laughs> Goliath is mammoth. He's what you call a giant. He comes down. The king of the Philistines like, that's our champ. All right. I challenge you, Israel, and this, was, this happened often in the ancient warfare, to eliminate bloodshed. Sometimes you'd have your best champion fight against the other army's best champion. And if you lost, you had to submit to them and become their slaves. Well, they were going to do this. The Philistines felt pretty confident. Israel, for 40 days, watches this giant lumber down into the valley and threaten them and blaspheme their God and belittle them and call them names and swear and curse and slander. And Israel, just every time they would see him, they would, ooh, this guy is way too much for us. Almost 10 feet tall. It describes his armor in verse 4, and it's described as weighing 126 pounds. That's a lot of armor. It's a lot of show. It's a lot of glit and glam. And look, look at what the author does. He goes out of his way to let us know how magnificent Goliath is. Verse 4. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. That's almost 10 feet. 
He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armored with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and the bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, which is roughly 15 pounds in our measurement. Okay. Now... He's not describing the armor so that Americans can say, oh, that's how warriors dressed. (laughs) Obviously, the readers of the ancient times would have known what a warrior looked like. Elaborating on the details here, because the point is, this guy's armor is is just a far step and above and beyond anybody else's standard armor. The point is to say, this guy was imposing. He was magnificent. He made even Saul, remember who was a head and shoulder above everybody else? Even Saul was trembling. Saul, who's the tallest person in Israel, is scared of this giant. So, what's going to happen? Enter David, our anointed king. Although, it's on the secret, right? This hasn't been published abroad. David doesn't want to be killed by Saul. So the king that you, the reader, knows, he comes and we see what is he like. What kind of a king will he be? So, um, David is sent to go give food to his brothers. And um, look at verse 28. So his brothers are on the army, three of them. David sent to give him food. And in 17, verse 28, now Eliab, the eldest brother, remember that was the one Samuel wanted to anoint king. Ooh, he's impressive. Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when David spoke to the men. David was asking everybody around the army, hey, what did the king say the, the winner would get if he beats Goliath? Oh my goodness, you mean a free ride, no taxes, and to marry one of his daughters? Son-in-law to the king, how awesome would that be? So David's going around asking, is that really what you get by killing this uncircumcised Philistine who's blaspheming the god of our armies? Really? And so Eliab hears David inquiring, and he gets upset. So continuing verse 28, Eliab's anger was kindled against David, his little runt little brother, right? The baby of the family, I'm the eldest charismatic Eliab. Why have you come down, David? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? See how much his brothers love him? By the way, did you pick up, I forgot to highlight the fact that all the sons are supposed to come to that feast and they intentionally neglect David, right? This wasn't like, oh, we just didn't want to bother him. Samuel said, bring all your sons. We conveniently forgot David. There's something in this family that does not think David measures up. With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, it is well rehearsed, right? David said this many times in his life. What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another. Spoke him the same way. And the people answered him again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Free taxes. He's going to marry Saul's daughter. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them to Saul. And he sent for him. Saul said, I must meet this guy, this valiant, brave warrior. And David came before him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of this giant. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul eyes David up and down rather quickly. Doesn't take much time. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. 
You are small. You're just a shepherd. You're a nobody. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David doesn't back down. David's in this moment, and he's looking back. Yeah, I've had a lowly, lonely season of being a shepherd, but I've learned something in that season. And I realized that I was made for this moment. And he's not like, oh, you're right, maybe I shouldn't do this. No, David recognizes he's been through things that not even Saul's been through because he's been through some hardship. David recognizes he can face things with courage that all these other wusses can't. Because they haven't been as lonely, as neglected, and as lowly, and as isolated and excluded as he has been. So, David answers. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Ah, I know that's not very impressive, but listen. And when there came a lion, or a bear, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Now you can see Saul's eyes a little bit. You did? Just like, grab the jaws and like, I got you, lion. It's pretty manly. 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defiled, defied the armies of the living God. Remember God said, I'm looking for a king after my own heart? You found it. Here's this boy. He's like, you defied my God? <laughs> you are a coward. I can take you. And David said, Yahweh who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and Yahweh be with you. I don't have to answer the call. Get this kid out there. Um, I want that to sink in there just for a second. What did Saul just say to David? Go and Yahweh be with you. Little does Saul know that he just sealed his fate. He just gave the favor of Yahweh upon this upstart who will one day take his throne. Saul just said that. Yahweh be with you. He's not with me anymore. He didn't say that, but that's what's happening here. Yahweh is now confirming the exchange of the spirit from this king to this king. And Saul points out, not even knowing what he's saying, but points out that this is the Lord's anointed. And David's going to go prove it. So, verse 38, Saul clothed David with his armor. Now, I don't know if this was well intended. Look, kid, let me help you out. Kind of like, you know how people are when you like try to go do something scary and people are like, throwing their advice on you? Just remember not to do this, remember to do that, and like, Okay, and all this, like, they're giving you armor, right? You're just feeling burdened by it. Maybe Saul means as well, like, hey, let me help you out, kid. Here's some advice. Or maybe Saul is hoping that this victory, if it happens, has the seal of his name on it. Saul's armor. The king's armor. I don't know which it is, but Saul hands David his armor. 
And so he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. I've never worn this armor before. I'm not going to go out there wearing your armor. And so David rather wisely says, you know what? I know that this armor is the king's and has a lot of glitter and make me look prestigious and like not like a little boy. I'll actually look like a, a knight in shining armor as I go out, you know? Um, but David has the wisdom here to say, look, this is who I am. For better or worse, I'm a shepherd. I know a staff. I know a sling. I have a shepherd's bag. There's a certain way I've lived, and that way of life has brought me to this point. Why would I turn my back on who I am and my past and what's brought me to this point just so that I can wear the glit and glam of the king's armor? Or just so that I can take someone else's advice who's not even courageous enough to go into the arena? And people will do this. They'll come around and say, no, no, you should do it like this. That's not conventional. You don't understand how the world works. But you need to know who you are, and you need to know where you've been and say, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying, and there's some, there's some worldly wisdom to that, but you need to know what I know, and you don't know, is that I have spent lonely months and hours with God. And I know who he is, and I know who I am, and I know how I killed that bear and that lion, and I don't need to suddenly change my tactics. I don't need to suddenly be like this king or be like the world wants me to be or show, put on a show for the king. I don't need to do any of this because I'm gold. There's some real gold here, and I don't care because gold doesn't have to glitter to be valuable. And in rejecting Saul's armor, you know what else he does? As David puts this armor off, it's a statement of what we're going to read in the coming chapters. As we're seeing the testing of this new king, we're being asked, who is this king going to be? One thing we know right now as he takes Saul's armor off is he is not going to be like King Saul. He does not wear that kind of armor. He does not follow these footsteps. This king will be different. David goes out and is exposed, vulnerable, shepherd uniform. And I love this. I love how verse 39 continues toward the end. Um, so David put them off, verse 40, so he picks up what he's used to. He took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. David goes out as David. Not as Saul, not as pretending to be someone bigger than he is. You can make fun of me, but this is who God has raised me up as. And I'm going to go in my smallness, in my shepherdness. A staff, shepherd's pouch, a sling. And the Philistine moved toward, moved forward and came nearer to David in verse 41 with his shield bearer in front of him. This guy's got so many weapons. He has a he has a golf caddy with him. Like that's what the shield bearer is. It's like spear, sword, no long sword. Yes, short sword. Like you know, it's, he's got weapons at disposal. David's going out with a stick, 
and a sling, of course. But that's not what you'll see. Um, Goliath sees it differently. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he completely underestimates him. He disdained him, for he was but a youth. This theme is running over and over, isn't it? The, the narrator is telling it and pounding into your head. David is insignificant. There's no glitter. There's no glamour to this kid. He's just this kid. And everybody sees him that way, except God. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance, which means his face hasn't been bemarred with war yet. And the Philistine said to David, <laughs> Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. By the God of Baal, may you blah, 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 blah. And the Philistine said to David, the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine. Now, David may not be used to lions and bears talking back to him, but he's definitely not afraid of this Philistine, I think, because he recognizes that God's not with him. And so he just talks back. He's like, I've always wanted my enemy to talk back to me. So here we go. It's going to be fun. You come with me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, Yahweh will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is Yahweh's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, so the Philistines would say, like, let's just put an end to this talk. He just starts charging at him. Now, typically, in battle, what the weapon of choice would have been was a spear. So the Philistine may be running at him with a spear. Your first, your first attempt is to try to peg him. Or if not, at least the spear is a di- it keeps the enemy at a distance, right? So he's not going to go with the sword. He's going to go with the spear. He's running in. And David, a few moments now, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Just like that. Done. And he fell on his face to the ground. It's as if this Philistine in his dying, his last dying act was to fall prostrate before the armies of Israel and their God. The God he defied, he dies, saying, yep, you win. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, I used to always think, like, well, this is kind of dramatic, isn't it? Like, this rock hits your head and you die? Um, I mean, you know, I've been hit in the head with a rock before. <laughs> Everyone goes, oh. <laughs> It hurt. I wanted to cry and, you know, find my mom and such. But we need to understand is that these slings were lethal. So you have, you know, a a leather pouch and two straps come up from it. And you put the stone in there. And it's a smooth stone. It's a a riverbed stone, so it's got aerodynamics, right? No drag, no resistance. Um, And David would sling it about like this. And um, according to the research I heard, uh, they would sling this six to seven times a second. Like, you get a lot of velocity out of this thing. 
So Dave is just swinging this thing around, and what you do is you let go of one of the straps, and it would release the rock. And uh, according to the research I was given, uh, this would go faster than a major league fastball. So they're throwing at 100 these days, so we're talking 100 plus miles an hour through the air. And um, the accuracy of these slings, the records show uh, from archaeology that um, slingers were able to hit birds in flight, and they were able to travel the distance of 200 yards and hit their human target at 200 yards. That's two football fields. It's pretty good accuracy. That's actually um, better than some people can do with guns today. So this is like an ancient gun. It, it propels a piece of you know, hard substance, and it sinks into the person. Going at that speed, uh, the rest of the research that I heard was that this is, this is akin, the impact on Goliath would be like a 45 caliber handgun. So David shoots this thing, and now I'm like, oh, it makes sense. This isn't just, oh, oh I'm knocked unconscious. This is like devastation. This is, he's done right there. And David finishes the job to cut the head off and show to everyone. This is trophy. Look what I have. And the Philistines don't hold their end of the bargain. They run rather than submit themselves to Israel. They run, so Israel chases after them. And there's a great victory. Um, so David... What if David took Saul's armor? What if David fought the way that you're supposed to? What if David was not true to who God has created him and formed him to be through the suffering and loneliness he'd been through? What if David suddenly switched gears because everybody wants me to be to shine and glitter with glamour? What if he went that path? What if he let people's accusations of you're too small, you're too short, you're not good enough, you're just a shepherd? What if all of that got to him? He knows who he is because he had spent the agony and the pain and the loneliness and the abandonment and the exclusion, the isolation and everybody judging him by his size or whatever it was they didn't think he was worthy of. He had spent a lifetime of that. And rather than believing it, he spent those lonely hours recognizing that when everything else fades, one thing remains. And it is the true constant, the true consistency, the one reality behind, underneath, within, around everything in the universe. And that is the God of Israel. The one true God. He got to know precisely because he didn't have to play with the competitive games of the ego with all of his childhood friends and all of his brothers and everybody around him. David got to grow up, yes, lonely and probably socially awkward, but he, through his loneliness, learned who he actually was. He was not better than or worse than these kids. A, a, lot of, a lot of what we are, the way we understand ourselves, is in direct contrast. It's in comparison to other people. Which, 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 by the way, is partly why I would suspect Saul was scared to fight this giant. Saul in Israel was the giant of Israel. He was the tallest in the country. And now that's his, right, that's his source of security and confidence. I am Geboha. I am the tallest, and everyone anoints me because of my championness. Now he's face to face with somebody who might actually be better than him at the one thing he's come to identify himself as. There's a lot for Saul to lose in facing off with somebody like that. Because suddenly his one identity could be eliminated if Goliath proves better than him. And so sometimes it's easier for us to disengage, to try to protect our identity, rather than engage 
and let everybody know that you're not as good as you thought you were. It's terrifying to know that. But see, David has none of that to lose because he doesn't have a comparison identity. He has not been raised in rivalries and comparing, well, I know who I am because I'm better than them at that, and I'm not like them, and I hang out with this group, and I like that music, and I wear these clothes, and I work that job, and I went to that school, and I have this IQ, all these, these are not the things in David's world. I'm a shepherd, and I know I can defeat lions and bears. Who's this guy? Has he done that? So I want us to be encouraged that you don't need the king's armor, at least King Saul's armor. You don't need the things that the world wears or uses for strength or for might or to say this makes us worthy. This is our badge. This is our accomplishment. We don't have to try to put those things on and walk awkwardly and say, did I look cool now? Hey, mom, take a picture. We don't have to do that anymore. We can remove those. As Colossians 3 says, and and Ephesians 4, that we're to put off the old self. We're to put off the works of the world and the works of darkness and the old self. We're to put something off. We're no longer trying to live for the glitter. We're trying to become gold. And so Colossians 3 continues, put on Christ. Put on peace, love, kindness, mercy. Paul gives us the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Self-control, and I missed something in there, but he gave us those nine fruits because this is the gold. This is what we're to be bearing, and we don't need that armor. It's just a shell. Saul had the shell because there's nothing within. We saw that last week. David said, I don't need this. I may not glitter, but I am gold. I also want to point out, in 17 verse 47, um, David cries out to Goliath, Yahweh saves not with sword and spear. The battle is Yahweh's. Yahweh doesn't save with the king's armor, with your glit and glam decor, armor bearer over there, I see it. He doesn't save with these things. And it reminded me of Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Do you know it? It's a good one. Zechariah 4, verse 6. Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, but by my spirit, says the Lord. When David was anointed, the spirit of God rushed upon him. He had the true weapon. It was beyond power and beyond might. And so David didn't say not by power, not by might, but by my spirit. He didn't say that, but he said the same thing in substance. When he said, not by sword, not by spear, but by the spirit of God working within me. He's anointed me. That's how it goes in. I wonder if we're relying too much on the king's armor, or on the spear, or on the sword. There's pressure, isn't there, in our society? American Idol and all these shows of who's the best and process of elimination and becoming a leader in the nation by simply chewing out everybody as worse than you. And There's this pressure for the Christian to enter into the game. We're better than everybody else. We've got our act together. 15 reasons you should join us. Um, and of course, there's a lot of truth to like, yeah, you should become a Christian. There's a lot of truth to that. 
But we look at David, whom everyone said, ha, what good are you? And rather than like trying to play the game, he just goes out as he is and shows the power of the Spirit. And Jesus does the same. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, a no town, just like David. Jesus wasn't a shepherd, um, but he, he was uh, a day laborer out there with the sign, I'll work today. Um, Jesus didn't go around boasting about what he'd done. Every time he'd heal somebody, he'd say, shh, don't tell anyone. In fact, so much so that Matthew chapter 12 cites Isaiah 42, which foresees a servant, who is Jesus, that will come and not declare his works out abroad, but he will be gentle with everyone, and he will be quiet, and he will work behind the scenes. That was Jesus. So behind the scenes that his hometown looked at him and said, who are you? Where did you come from? Where did you get all this power and this knowledge and this wisdom? Aren't you just the boy of Joseph? Aren't you just a carpenter or it's literally tecton, a worker, a day laborer? Aren't you just a day laborer who sits out in front of Home Depot every day? Aren't you just, who are you? Who do you think you are? They disdained him. He was another David. You're too small for this. You've outgrown your britches. His family said, that's an old phrase, isn't it? His family came up to him one day and said, you're out of your mind. Who do you think you are? Tame him down. And then, Philippians chapter 2 We read Paul saying to the Philippian church, Philippians 2 verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who did not count equality with God a thing to be seized, grasped. In other words, he didn't say, hey, hey, everybody, I'm like God. And he grabbed that identity and said, throw it in everyone's face and say, treat me right. I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. He didn't go around doing that. He just went around quietly defeating giants. He did not count equality God a thing to be grasped, but made himself in the form of servant. And was obedient to death, even death. This is important. Even death on a cross. Because the cross was the the masterminded scheme of killing people in the most shameful and humiliating way that it was the lowest possible way for somebody to die in that day. So, he not only became a servant, that's low, but he submitted to the master of death, that's low, and then he, he died in the lowliest way possible. Jesus knows what it's like to be David. In fact, he chose that path. He chose it. He didn't say, well, I couldn't be born in Caesar's palace and lead the world with my might. Instead, he came to Bethlehem. He came in the exact shoes of David's sandals, of David. He came not by power, not by might, not by spear, not by sword, but by the Spirit. Because Jesus recognized all that is gold doesn't glitter. You know, gold can always glitter. You can make it, you can polish it, you can purify it. You can make gold glitter, but you can never make glitter gold. You can never make glitter gold. That's why it's so important to start with the substance, the realness, removing the king's armor, throwing the spear and the sword away. This is the question. Are we infatuated with Saul's armor or are we instead saturated with God's spirit? Because if we're saturated with God's spirit soaking into us like the anointing oil, we will not be infatuated with the strength of the world. Because we will know the real, the raw, the powerful, the organic, the unfiltered power of God himself. The power that spoke things into being. We will know that power saturating into our being. 
instead of looking over at everything the world calls powerful and saying, ooh, I want that too, I want that, I want to be like that, we will know if there's a real difference. Saturated with the Spirit, and you won't be infatuated with Saul. So are we filled with God's Spirit tonight? Can we literally walk through life and say, not by sword, not by spear, not by power, not by might, but by the Spirit of God, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon me in my life, by his saturating me from the inside out, every core, every part of me, by what I've been through, my pain, my loneliness, my lowliness, by the shepherding places I've been that I didn't want to be, by through all these things, recognizing that there's a power that I can find at the lowest bottom part of life, that that is what I'm going on in, that strength, that power, that might, the Spirit of God. Are we there tonight? Or have we been far too infatuated with the world's glit and glam? Um, I, I, there, there's a few things we can do, but I think one of the things I want us to take away with tonight is how did David get to this point? And and by the way, the application is not, if you've got a good job, quit it and become a shepherd. That's not what you're supposed to do. If anybody says, Brandon, you made my life miserable, I'll say, well, dude, I never said that. Um, That's not it. The the goal is not to seek, how can I make my life miserable? How can I defriend everybody so I can be lonely? That's not the point. We've all been somewhere, will be somewhere at some point where we experience that. That's the point. But but the point is, is... How are we going to handle the times when we're in these shepherding seasons, when we feel very low and very alone? How are we going to handle those times? Are we going to constantly look and say, the grass is greener with the other shepherd? Or, I can get it, the other side of the fence. Um, Are we going to constantly yearn for something else? Or are we going to just sit in that situation and say, all right, all right. When I'm alone, I am most near to God. And anybody who's been at a place where they are alone and lowly, well, not anybody, but the ones that seek God, they will tell you that those are some of the sweetest seasons of their life with him. And they wouldn't be who they are without them. That because of everything being removed, and because of being alone, They found the true power of God. They found the true friendship of God. They experienced the presence of him everywhere, even in the lowest, loneliest places. So when you're in that season, I want us to do what David did. Wait well. Wait well. We don't see what David did as a shepherd. We just know he was a shepherd. But I can tell you with as much certainty as I can that he did a few things because it's evident in the text. First, you know that David did not waste his time because the minute he's not a shepherd, he's doing things that would take a lot of time to master. First, he kills a giant with a sling. You don't wallow in your shepherding loneliness and loneliness and say, oh, lonely, oh, be delivered, and then finally, oh, cool, all right, oh, a giant, what do I do now? Like, you don't just know how to swing a sling and kill a giant. It means David has spent those lonely years mastering the slingshot, tree after tree being nailed, coyote, wolf, lion, bear being nailed. Time after time, he used the time to learn how to sling and then when, when, when Saul says, hey, I need somebody to play the 
lyre or the harp to soothe my bad spirit. Someone says, I know somebody who can do it. They didn't say, hey, there's this friend I have named David. Maybe he can learn it while he plays for you and you feel better. You don't want to hear somebody learn the violin in your presence. It's awful. (laughs) David clearly knew how to play music. He knew already how. So as he's waiting in this horrible, hard season, he is slinging and he's singing. So that when God takes him out, because he has trust that this is not all I was made for, one day he will deliver me. When he is dramatically delivered in a way he could never have imagined, anointed as the future king of Israel, he is then the slinger and the singer. And when he, a singer's needed, he's there. And when a slinger's needed, he's there. He was ready. He waited well. He was using the time, getting close to God and, and discovering the things that he can do and, and, and mastering them. And so this is much like we see Jesus telling the disciples um, just before he leaves them and goes to heaven, he says, wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit. Wait, and don't go anywhere until the power of the Holy Spirit comes. And so the, the disciples wait, and what do they do? My iPhone just died. Do you have any more battery juice, man? This waiting has been awful. Ah, oh, the Wi-Fi. Peter, go fix it. <laughs> Sometimes it's how we wait. When will the new season of this show come on? Because I just binge-watched it three times. <laughs> they were praying while they were waiting. Huh? Guys, waiting is not always glamorous. It doesn't glitter. But the gold is mined in those seasons of waiting. That's when the gold is mined. It's been said that anything we're doing is 90 to- 90% of the time boring. The early church, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, prayed, took communion, gathered together, and listened to the teaching of the word. Those four things. You know what's happening like a plague in our society today? Church is boring, let's spice it up. We don't go to church because we don't relate to those people. It doesn't do anything for me. Wait, wait, wait. Not all that is gold glitters. Right? Or all that is gold doesn't glitter. That's gold. It just may not glitter. Ah, prayer. Yeah, I pray when there's a problem. I pray when somebody asks me. I pray at church. Do you have a regular prayer life? That's gold. It may not glitter, but it's gold. The Bible. Yeah, yeah, I get plenty when Pastor Brandon teaches. Really? If you think me reading a few verses out of these two chapters is getting everything for you, you're missing so much. Like, yeah, you know, you may like it this way, but look, reading it on your own, it may not be glitter, but it's gold. Taking communion. Come on, seriously, you guys still do the the bread and the juice and think that God is with you? And like, why even do that? Why bother? Because it's gold. And Jesus commanded it. There's a togetherness in these practices that we do. And we may not be able to say, oh, this week it was awesome. Let me tell you. And you know people like that, right? You know what I read this week in the Bible? is so amazing. God spoke to me like, oh, my gosh. Because you know God never does that for you. And so you feel like, I just don't get it. So I'm not going to read because this person, no, stop listening to their glitter and glamour and whatever speeches. You just keep with the gold because somewhere in life it's doing something. It's doing something doing something. If we continue to meet together in our churches 
And whether it's here or the many other fellowships that people attend in this room, it really doesn't matter where. We just need a fellowship. We need to be together. We need to be in prayer. We need to be in the scriptures. And we need to be taking communion with the body of Christ. It doesn't always glitter. It's not always glamorous. It doesn't always do something for me right then and there. But it's gold. And this is how we wait. God will, for the people whom he sees his heart, a person after his heart, he will tap them on the shoulder with the prophet Samuel, pour the oil and say, you're filled with my spirit. Let's go to your first Goliath. Let's go knock the world down. Let's take Saul's armor off and let's show what it looks like to have somebody after God's own heart living courageously in the world. So the worship team's going to come up. We're going to take communion. Um, this this communion tonight, obviously it's it's always Jesus' body and blood, and I'm not going to change that, but I want you to, while you take it, as you're taking the symbol of God's love for us, I want you to also take or ask God to give you the saturation of his Holy Spirit. That you would no longer be walking and living in your own strength. You would be tonight laying the armor aside so that the Spirit can fill us. And if you want prayer, um, I will be more than happy to pray with you. Or somebody next to you. Sometimes we just, and know you can pray on your own and that's fine. But sometimes we just want somebody else to connect with. The way Samuel anointed David. Sometimes God wants to use a person in your life to pray the Spirit into your life. And so that's what I would like to happen tonight. Is that none of us would leave without taking Saul's armor off and being anointed with the Spirit of God tonight. That's my deep desire is to see his power in our lives. Will you guys pray with me? Mm Spirit of the living God.